You know, something that I'm continually surprised by is the number of queer and trans people who are religious. On the whole, we very much are a people of faith. And I myself am Jewish, as you might have heard me say six or seven thousand times, but I really do consider myself to be a late bloomer when it comes to religion. I didn't grow up going to temple, I was never bar mitzvahed, but recently I've been getting more in touch with that spiritual side of me and accepting that there's a lot of questions that I have that are not necessarily ever going to be answered. Now that said, that didn't stop me from posing them to today's guest, Rabbi Denise Egger. She's a world famous rabbi and perhaps the most famous lesbian rabbi ever. Rabbis who are able to be out and queer are a relatively new thing, especially for a religion that's over 3,000 years old. We spoke last month right before I went to Israel, and while there, I did bring my mic and do interviews. So today begins our four-part series on queer life and Judaism and how the two intersect, not just in me, but in notable figures. So you'll hear me talk to Rabbi Denise and other Jewish leaders, and I think you're going to be as surprised as I was. We talk about Israel and Tel Aviv specifically as the safe haven for queer and trans people in the Middle East. And as I found being there, it's complicated, of course, but that's not necessarily true. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. On the way over here, I was thinking about just our history, and you must be part of the first generation of openly queer rabbis. Yes. Right? I am of the first generation of openly queer rabbis. Not the first. Uh, that would be Rabbi Alan Bennett, who was the first openly gay rabbi in, in the States. He um, came out during the Briggs Initiative uh, when they wanted to throw all the round up the teachers and throw them out of the schools. Um, he was Harvey Milk's rabbi uh, in San Francisco back in the day. Um, but I did come out early on, you know, and when I was ordained and when Rabbi Bennett was ordained and others, we, we were not able to be out in seminary. You had to be closeted or you would not be ordained and you would be removed from seminary. So I was ordained in 1988 served a LGBTQ congregation here in LA. So they must have known you were... Well, they yeah. kind of knew. I always called it the plexiglass closet. <laughs> Wasn't too hard to find. You know, it was kind of a don't ask, don't tell. And those, for some of us, in 1990, uh, my our denomination reformed Judaism. There was a resolution to allow openly gay people to be ordained as rabbis. And um, I came out publicly in LA Times in advance of the convention in part to put a face and a name that this was people that you knew. I'd been a rabbi here in L.A. for two years already. You know, that's what Harvey Milk taught us. You have to come out. People, once people get to know you, it's a very different. It's not just something out there that's something else to be scared of, but it's your neighbor. It's your teacher. It's your banker. It's the person that sold you the car. It's, it's your rabbi. Sale. It's your rabbi. Right. So when you were in school, knowing that you couldn't be out, did you assume that you would become a rabbi and stay closeted forever? Well, it's interesting. Um, we had an, we, uh, there were a couple of us made an underground uh, support group for one another at the seminary. We called ourselves Hinenu, which is the Hebrew word for I'm here. Um, and we used to meet kind of 
covertly underground, far away from campus, um, to, because it was really painful and really hard. This was the 80, mid-80s, and uh, AIDS was really just starting to take its horrible toll on our community. And I just kind of thought, I didn't know what to think at that time in my life. Uh, I thought that I wouldn't really be able to be open and out about my whole life. But as anybody who's deep in the closet knows, A, it's not healthy, and B, you know, lying is not a good thing. It's not good for the soul. And particularly for a rabbi, that's not something of being a person of integrity if you're hiding and lying about who you are. I couldn't do it. So I when you do it. came out, uh, were you... That was before the resolution was passed. Were you afraid that you they might not pass it? And here you yeah, are. I mean, I was already yeah. I mean, that could have been a possibility. But I was already working in an LGBTQ synagogue here in Los Angeles at the time. I was already the rabbi here in Los Angeles in 1988 at the first gay synagogue, and it was the again the height of the AIDS crisis. I was already running from hospital to hospital in 1988, mostly you know ministering to our community, our young men that were dying. I mean, you get a, in those years, you'd get a diagnosis and six weeks later you were dead. It was a very different time than now. So I didn't really have a lot of time to hang out and sit around and ponder my, my fate. I was dealing with the fate of other people. I actually am unable to process how many men and people were dying at that time. Hundreds. Hun I can't explain to you how many people died. To be 28 years old, I was 28 at the time, newly minted rabbi, certainly didn't talk about this in seminary, you know, oh yeah, I learned how to make a hospital visit, but did you know how to make a hospital visit when you're masked? In those days, you had to put on a cap and a gown and a mask and rubber gloves and, and people were, the nurses wouldn't go into the rooms of people with HIV and they'd leave the food outside. And uh, this is a great story. And um, Reverend Troy Perry, who founded Metropolitan Community Churches, the gay church, and I one day ran into each other at Cedar sinai Hospital. Both were masked up and gowned up. And I, Troy, how are you? Denise, how are you? And we were started to chit-chat a little bit about visiting our members. We were both commiserating that the hospital was nurses and the doctors, that people were being uncooperative. These were the years when they thought you could catch it through the air and... You know, we both admitted to each other that we would go into the rooms and take off our masks and gloves and hold the hand because somebody hasn't had human touch in forever. And we would feed people because they were leaving the food outside the bed and people were so weak. They were skeletal and they couldn't get up and get their own food. So we were, if they could still eat, we would feed our member, our parishioners. And we didn't know that the other was doing that at the time, but uh, it was empowering for both of us to realize that as ministers, as a rabbi, caring for our community, what we had to do to take care of each other and to literally take care of those that were dying. And I think that we have the perception in the community of not being people of faith when actually like the majority of us are. Yes. And, and that's probably the biggest closet in the queer community is that First of all, we're very spiritual people. And many of us have our either faith of origin or we found a new one. But, you know, there's such a, a negativity about it. And I understand why, because many people have used the Bible or the Quran, or the Torah to bash and to murder and to kill. I get it. 
But there are a lot of us who are very progressive and a lot of faith traditions that are incredibly inclusive and have changed and are not doing what you see portrayed in the press from the far extremist right-wing evangelicals, be they Jews, Muslims, or Christians. It's a completely different world than 30 plus years ago. And so did you always feel like sexuality and Judaism didn't conflict? Did oh, uh, yeah. We're, it, Judaism is really different than Christianity this way. In Christianity, sexuality is negativity. In Judaism, sexuality is something that's part of living a healthy life. And yes, there are boundaries around it. You know, you're supposed to express your sexuality within a committed relationship. But, you know, there are only a couple lines in the Torah about a man shouldn't lie with a man as he lies with a woman. Um, and most of the rest, there's there's really nothing else about gay or lesbian. And the truth is, most people misread what it means. They don't know the Hebrew and they don't really understand what it means. And I don't know any gay man that lies with another man as he would a woman anyways, um, if we're going to be literalists about it. Point. <laughs> right? It's our own unique experiences of intimacy and sexuality. And But Judaism does have a healthy approach. I believe that sexuality and expressing sexuality is normal. Uh, it's divine in the sense that God gave us our sexuality, not only for procreation, but for pleasure in Judaism. And so we don't quite have that negativity that one sees that is often in the larger culture that really in America anyways comes from Christianity. And so that embrace of sexuality on the whole extends to queer people. As Absolutely well. extends to queer people and in, in most of Judaism in, in North America. And, I, and the other piece of that uh, embrace of of LGBTQ people. Did, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It's something we've been working on institutionally uh, to change hearts and minds and to understand that what they're talking about in the Torah and the Bible, in those Leviticus passages that they love to quote, you know, uh, uh, anti-gay people like to quote, but they'll go ahead and eat shrimp, which is also in the Torah. So, I, you know, it's you can't have one is more important than the other kind of thing. We've always picked and choose. Yeah, exactly. But it, we, you know, the, what we, if we really understand and we do uh, the proper analysis of those verses, you'll see that this language is talking to the priests. It's not talking about how people are in their orientation or identity. We're, we're talking about um, how people, priests function in the ancient pagan world and the Jewish world. And um, in the ancient world, you had priests and then you had priestesses. And often in those ancient religions, priests and priestesses were stand-ins for the god or goddess. And so mo many ancient religions in the ancient Near East, um, Hittites, Canaanites, um, you know, you had fertility rites. And so part of those fertility rites were that you had uh, sexual intercourse with the priest or priestess of that religion. It was a way of of appeasing the god or goddess. Well, Judaism has a very particular, we only have male priests at that time, not like today where we have men and women rabbis uh, or trans rabbis and non-binary rabbis. And But part of that prohibition is really saying, well, that's not how we worship our god. We're not. You're not going there to the temple to have sex with the priest. And that's really what they're that's really what that is. It's a complete wrong analysis by most people about what's in there. Wow. You mentioned trans people. Has the, but has Judaism always been as accepting of trans folks? Well, you know, the Talmud, it's later in history than the Bible, but is our collection of Jewish law and teachings and stories. Um, 
recognizes there are six genders. It's not just male and female. We talk, the Talmud talks about the androgynous, the androgynous person. It talks about how you uh, determine who's who. There's a respect for human dignity that is very much woven into Jewish life. And it really comes from a, a theological understanding that every human being is created in God's image. Everyone, no mistakes. So do you think that other rabbis would agree with you on this reading? Oh, I know for sure. Really? They mind the entire movement of Reformed Judaism, I believe conservative Judaism, and I believe many sections of the Orthodox world understand that in the Jewish religion, that human beings are created B'Tselem Elohim in the divine image. There's no, there's no mistakes. And so when you're saying this, you're not saying that this is a queer reading of the Torah. This is no. just a reading of this the Torah. This is a reading. It's not a queer only reading. This is our theology. Everybody's created in God's image. And therefore, we owe one another the respect and human dignity that you deserve because it's your divine blessing. One of the reasons I think Judaism has been, as a religion in this late in this contemporary times, has been much more open to welcoming LGBTQI people, has because we have been the other. You know, I grew up in the South. Jews and blacks were at the bottom of the heap. We both couldn't live in certain neighborhoods. We were both attacked by the Klan. Jews are not white. Jews are, <laughs> uh, um, and we were some other classification. And the same is true in medieval Europe. Jews were never citizens of the countries that they were lived in, and they were kicked out of Spain in 1492 and in England in 1011. And um, they were only, they were seen as other because they weren't Christians and they couldn't own land and they were only allowed certain kinds of professions and they had to be traders or they were forced into being bankers by the church. So these things meant Jews have a special sensitivity, what it means to be a stranger, what it means to be outside of the mainstream of society. And in the 20th century, for sure, the Jewish community did so much work in welcoming the stranger, whether they were refugees, whether they were, uh, whether it was the Jewish Black Alliance in the earliest part of the civil rights movement, same thing around LGBTQ civil rights. And Jewish organizations have been very involved in the uh, helping uh, forward and advance LGBTQ civil rights, too. I mean, everything you're saying about feeling like an outsider, I think, applies to the queer experience. Right. The queer, it is our experiences as queer people, right? We are, we're outside the mainstream. And, and certainly if you interview those in an older generation, um, you know, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s in the queer community, they remember times when you had, you were, couldn't be out. You know, there was no will and grace on TV. Uh, you know, you, you, people, people grow up with that now, right? Uh, there weren't out performers. Um, so, you didn't have any role models. Have you seen a change in your congregation, the people that, and how they identify and like sexuality and like their awareness of gender? Oh, I think there's been a huge sea change in, in gender identity. Um, we see uh, many more people identifying as trans or as non-binary now. That was unheard of even 10 years ago. There's always been trans folks in the community. And, you know, in the earlier years, there were certainly were trans folks. Once they transitioned... They didn't want to be known as trans folks. They wanted to be their gender identity that they transitioned to. Today, it's very different. There are people that embrace their trans identity all the time. Uh, there's people who, um, you know, the, the non-binary uh, uh, way of 
following one's identity um, is relatively uh, new. Do you find that it is more rare to be a rabbi who's queer versus a rabbi who is female? Uh, at one time it was, um, now there's a, there's a, there in, in the liberal reform, liberal movements of Judaism, uh, conservative reform, reconstructionists, there are quite a number of, uh, LGBTQ rabbis and, uh, you know, certainly growing, growing number of women rabbis. I, way there's, I was just at a convention actually of, uh, reform women rabbis. Um, and we were with, um, Sally Prezand, who was the first woman rabbi, uh, in America ordained in 1972. That's fascinating that for such an old religion, the first female rabbi is in our generation. Right. Well, interestingly, this, there was one woman rabbi ordained in Berlin in 1935. Her name was Regina Jonas. She taught and preached in Berlin. She was shipped off to the concentration camp in Theresien in, in the Czech Republic. And then uh, two years later, uh, was shipped off and died in Auschwitz. So, and her story was lost for decades. A few years ago, I went with a delegation of women rabbis from around the world to Berlin uh, to walk in her footsteps, re to try and rediscover her. And um, we dedicated a memorial plaque to her in Theresienstadt in the uh, remains of the concentration camp there. And what was interesting, it was uh, accompanying us was Sally Prezen, Rabbi Prezen, the first woman in the modern era, as we say. And then she, but she was, she was ordained as I was at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, the Reform Move Jewish Seminary. But then the first women of the other seminaries, the conservative uh, seminary, Jewish theological seminary, Rabbi Amy Eilberg, the reconstructionist seminary, Rabbi Sandy Sasso, who was number two. And then a phenomenon that's happened in the Orthodox world. Um, in the last t 10 years or so, Orthodox Jewish women have demanded to be ordained and be teachers. Some are called rabbis, some have a different other title. So Sarah Hurwitz, who was one of them, not the first, but one of the first Orthodox women rabbis was also on the trip. So you had these four firsts um, uh, from each of the different major streams of Jewish life. And we all went to reclaim Rabbi Regina Jonas's legacy wow. uh, and rediscover her. It's quite a story. And I think of Orthodox Judaism as being unchanged, right? Beholden to their traditions only. So for them to accept women is they, a pretty well, big not change. A, yes, but remember in Orthodoxy, there's lots of flavors, right? There's also that in and of itself has many, many different uh, uh, types and sections and sex. So um, this is only in the most liberal, what we would call the modern Orthodox uh, section of the Orthodoxy, but it's there. And they- It's a crack. It's a, it's a huge gaping chasm. <laughs> Let's not even call it a crack, uh, which is good, which is good because it talks about, again, this goes back to the same idea of learning to value different voices and inclusivity and diversity and all of the things that our queer movement stands for. Do female rabbis make as much as male rabbis? No, there's a oh, major really? wage gap. We fight the same battles that happen across in the, in the private sector and everything else. In fact, I was just in a, a, a meeting about this. Uh, 
we can document, at least in Reform Judaism already, a 19% swing. Uh, what doesn't matter whether you're in the larger congregations or smaller congregations. But what we do know, there is definitely a stained glass ceiling, just like there is in the church world. Uh, there are not as many women in major leadership positions in the big mega congregations in Judaism. Uh they often still have the picture of the man, a lot of implicit bias still. We still fight the same gender battles that are in the in the public, in the rest of the world. Doctors still fight it. Yeah. Lawyers still fight it. Same with like Corporation, sexual harassment. Right. Corporations. Oh, yeah. There's a whole thing about Me Too in the, in the clergy world, in the Jewish world. Just like it's not like what happened with the Catholic Church. We don't have that happening here. But there is a Me Too issue, and that's just part of life and human interaction. It's a part of every area. And I think that like, because it's so rampant and widespread in the Catholic world, we can like assign all blame to them only. Right. And I, well, and I think it's not just a church issue. See, this is the thing we just, people want to. Oh, it's a people issue. It's a people issue. And it happens in hospitals and happens in corporations. And we look what we have in Hollywood with the media, with Harvey Weinstein's of the world and the many other directors and producers and you know, we see it. We see it every year here. You know, we're in West Hollywood, so uh, our congregation. So Hollywood's just right here. We're right here at the stone at a, at the doorway, and you know, we, we see it with women. Women don't get directors' jobs, and they're not the they're not enough women directors and not enough women producers. And a couple years ago, Frances McDormand got up and talked about inclusion writers. Well, we're actually talking about inclusion writers in our denomination in the same way to insist that women and men and queer people be treated equally to live our values and our values of social justice. That's what we fight for in the social justice world. And we need to fight that also in terms of pay equity and parity. That's incredible. Because when women do better, men do better. You know, I told you I'm going to Israel next week. Yes. We would say Nisiatova in Hebrew. Have a great trip. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything that, any advice or anything I should pay attention to while I'm there? Well, first of all, you are in for a wonderful experience. Israel is an amazing, vibrant country. It's not at all what you see on the news and CNN, which is um, will give you only as if there's only one issue and one issue alone. So I would say open your eyes to the art and to the music. Uh, open your eyes to the amazing restaurants and theater. Open your eyes to the incredibly warm-hearted people that are there from many different backgrounds. Yes, uh, Jews, Muslims, Christians, Druze, Bedouin, uh, expats from all over the world. Wow. What does Israel mean to you just personally? Israel is the Jewish homeland. It is the place of my ancestors. Um, it's And it, it's ancient. It's more than... Jerusalem is a city was founded more than 3,000 years ago by King David. So for me, Israel is the literally the Holy Land, and it's where my family lives, literally and figuratively. Uh, so this is the thing about Judaism. In America, we'd say, oh, Judaism, Judaism is a religion. But Judaism is much more than a religion. It's not just a religion. It's really um, much deeper than that because we have a language. We have a culture. We have uh, we have a land that we hail from, um, and even though it's centuries ago, Jews have longed for the return to the land of Israel. It's woven throughout our prayers. It's not just some political 
um, movement that started in Europe in the 1800s in a response to anti-Semitism. It's something that's woven into the fabric of our theology. And so every year at Passover, uh, in the spring at the holiday of Passover, Jews sit around their family dining room table and recite the story of the exodus from Egypt that's described in the Bible. And at the end of that ceremony, we say, Lishana Haba'abi Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. Now, that wasn't something that was invented in 1899. This is something that goes back to ancient times. So that longing for that, our homeland, even though we were kicked out of our homeland in the year 70 by the Romans when they conquered um, that part of the world, um, has been something that we long to return to. And so for me, Israel is this vibrant place in the contemporary world. It's very modern society, uh, contemporary society with like all of the stuff of, of our lives. And yet it is also my ancient homeland. With as much as it means to the Jewish people, like how do you then process like the conflict going on? and the other like uh, stakes of ownership from other religions. Right. And like, I guess, I guess I'm wondering too, like how do you think about it? But then also like, what do you, what would you like to see happen? Oh, I pray for peace every day. I know that there's lots of narratives, right? There's a Palestinian narrative that's different than my narrative. I don't deny it. Um, I need to own, listen to it. I need to be able to look my Palestinian friends and neighbors in the eye and hear their story and their pain. They also have to listen to mine. And unfortunately, I, what happens particularly here in the United States is we, we only hear and see part of the story. We don't see the whole story. Here, it's kind of interesting. In Israel has freedom of the press, just like here, freedom of the press. A lot of, there are a lot of reporters in Israel. So Israel seems like in our, in our American press gets so much attention um, because there are, they can't go to these other countries and report freely in the same way. So it's heightened in our own press. And so what good reporting, you want to have a story. A story isn't like, oh, let's talk about the flavors of ice cream. Yeah. You go to the conflict, right? So that's part of the hyper-focus in journalism on the on the conflict. That being said, there's, there are real issues. There are real issues of equity. There's real issues of fairness and treatment for Palestinians. Um, I'm not uh, one that believes that the current government uh, of Israel is appropriately addressing the Palestinians' concerns. Um, but I also think the Palestinian leadership has not sat down uh, at the table and have been willing to sit down. Um, every opportunity to make peace, they've said no. Um, they're not willing to settle for anything less than the whole thing. And uh, what that means is that they're not recognizing that there's also a Jewish narrative. And so for, for my perspective, we need to have a different kind of conversation, one that's going to recognize the dignity of both peoples and both stories and both claims to the land. Do you have a lot of discussions about this here in America? Yeah, we do have. We have a lot of people, a lot of uh, visitors. We have a lot of uh, scholars that come and talk to us. Um, and I go to Israel often. I mean, in December, I was there with a group of seminarians, rabbinical students, and we went to Jericho and we sat with Saib Erkat, who has been the chief negotiator for the Palestinian Authority for the last 30 years. I sat next to him in his office and we talked to him. And, um, you know, I'm not someone who's, only one-sided in my um, 
in my learning and in my exposure and in my willingness to seek peace and partners wherever I can. Um, so it, it's very frustrating for me that in the LGBTQ community, there's been uh, a big rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Israel and anti-Zionism. Um, and for example, you know, a couple years ago in Chicago, the Dyke March refused to allow Jewish uh, lesbians and Jewish people to be able to march with a Jewish pride flag because it has a Star of David in the middle. And they said that's, uh, you know... They, they are basically anti-Israel. Of course, the Palestinian flag can be, you can march with the Palestinian flag, but you can't march with the Jewish pride flag. I believe our home in West Hollywood also said that for this year. Yeah, we had a big problem here in the city of West Hollywood around uh, some movies and some things um, and uh, endorsement of a kind of an anti-Israel attitude. And we, we did some work with the city council and the city on this issue. Are you familiar with the concept of pinkwashing? I've heard of it, yes. Uh, I don't buy it. It's BS. It's another way to demonize Israel. It's another way to demonize uh, gay people. And the truth of the matter is Tel Aviv is home to the Middle East's largest uh, gay pride celebration at 250,000 people on the beach. They come from all over Europe. That's not pinkwashing. That's the reality. The city of Tel Aviv sponsors gay pride. But this is a tool and a tactic of uh, of those who Palestinian support uh, supporters of Palestinian uh, statehood who don't just want to state side by side with Israel. They want to destroy the state of Israel. I brought that up because many people told me not to go and they like talked about pinkwashing and uh, they say that like Israel glorifies its uh, LGBTQ record in order to like distract from like a westward expansion into Gaza no, and the West Bank. That's not, that's so, that, that shows their naivete. That's just not true. It's about the freedom and the democracy that Israel really is to live your life, to raise your family, to be, you know, if you get, there is no such thing as civil marriage in Israel for anybody. Um, so if you want to marry, uh, a Jew wants to marry a Christian, they have to go somewhere else to get married. So everybody goes to Cyprus. If you don't want a religious ceremony, you want a, just a secular ceremony, you, you know, if you, even if whether you were Christian or Jewish or Muslim and you didn't want a religious ceremony, you still have to go to Cyprus. There's no court to go get married. In Israel today, if you're a gay couple or a lesbian couple, and there's no, you go to, you go and get married where it's legal and you come back and you register your marriage like everybody else. So that's not peak washing. That's dealing with real people's lives. I think that um, I, I, I agree. I also think that like pinkwashing is a nice, trendy, easily identifiable term that allows you to write off the full country when like that's not actually like feasible, right? Well, it, 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 it's it's a tactic of anti-Semitism is really what it is. You say, oh, those Jews, they're they're going to put the queers above everybody else and the poor Palestinians. Well, this isn't about. Your suffering is greater than my suffering. If Palestinians are suffering, we want, we want to address the suffering. It's, it's not about holding one group of people over the other. That's the worst part of identity politics, and it's, it's, it's really not okay. But I will say this. Um, they can't, they don't have gay pride in downtown Ramallah. They don't have gay pride in downtown Jericho. They don't have gay pride in Gaza. I can tell you for this for sure. You want to talk about celebrating queer life. When I have written letters to the ministry, foreign ministry in Israel to make grant asylum to Palestinians fleeing their lives from their family and from security force, Palestinian forces who want to murder them and kill them when they've been outed, 
don't tell me about pinkwashing because the LGBTQ groups in Israel do a lot of work with support for Palestinian queer people, run support groups, and also have tried to seek asylum for those who have been outed in the Palestinian Authority in Gaza. And I know I have had to write letters of support for those Palestinians. So this is why these claims of pinkwashing is absolutely just a tool of those who want to, again, destroy Israel and to pit gay people against Jewish people and Israelis. And I feel like the term also comes from a genuine complaint about the country. And yet we have complaints about every country, right? I think about our country locking people from the border. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. This is like what we should be on the streets. And I don't want to be defined by that. Right. There's lots in our country that we, we can be proud Americans and we are. We don't agree with many of the policies of our current government. I despise them. They're hateful. They're harmful. They're hurtful. They're abhorrent. Well, as an American Jew, I love Israel as my homeland, heritage, place of heritage, but I don't have to agree with all of the policies of its current government either. And so I have to work to change. I work as I can from, I'm not a citizen. I don't vote there. I vote in America. I'm an American citizen, but I try to have influence where I can. But I often feel like because Israel means so much to Jews that we can't critique it. And then also if we do critique it, then we are automatically labeled as anti-Semitics. Right. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think it's how it's done. I think you have to pay attention to the words we use. And so, I, so for example, the charge of pinkwashing, that's already bordering on anti-Semitism. But if you want to say, I disagree with the policies of Bibi Netanyahu's government and that there should no longer be building, they shouldn't be building on the West Bank, that's a legitimate criticism. I don't think that's anti-Semitic. I don't think that's anti-Israel. That's a critiquing a policy. But when you lump in a whole group of people, then you're kind of stepping in over the line because Israel's not a monolithic place, nor is the United States. Of course. And I think the argument is that their glorifying of being this gay city in the Middle East is distracting from like it's, the westward expansion. Why, why is it? Why is that? Is distra- I don't. I don't really understand. I think that it gives the, them like. I think people say that it gives them brownie points. You know. Well, when, that I think that doesn't. Uh, that's that doesn't have the reality of what the day-to-day life and experience of as someone who lives in Tel Aviv, for example, of a gay person or a lesbian person or a trans person living in Tel Aviv. That's not, they don't, they're not doing it because the Israeli government isn't doing that or Tel Aviv city municipality of Tel Aviv isn't doing what it's doing as a strategic way to distance itself from the problems of the situation. I think this goes back to everything you were saying that in the American press, Israel is this one issue place. Right. When there is many, many. When there are many, many issues. They have the same issues that we do with increasing wage gap between the rich and the poor. They have similar issues with housing and and skyrocketing prices of housing and rent. The, the day-to-day bread and butter issues of average Israelis aren't really different than what the day-to-day issues that we are facing here in America. How do you, how do you pay the rent? How do you afford a house? How do you put food on the table for your family? How do you how do you have save enough money to take a vacation? This these are day to day issues, and we have them here too. And going off that, we in America are have seen historic levels of anti-Semitism. Yes, the number of anti-Semitic assaults last year doubled, 
Is that something you've experienced in your day-to-day life? Oh, we've experienced it quite a bit here in in West Hollywood. And, uh, of course, there was the shooting in Pittsburgh, uh, the murder of 11 people while they prayed on a Saturday morning. And then, of course, in San Diego, which is just a stone's throw from West Hollywood. Um, And we've had to take different... uh, tactics here in our own community to strengthen security. And um, it's it's been a very scary time. Anything just like personally? I, I can tell you the um, level of vitriol uh, and the level of um, anti-Semitic slurs uh, that I have received on social media has increased, whether it's on Twitterverse um, or email. Uh, I mean, I, I've had uh, a, a number of really, they've been really ugly and they do take a personal toll. They do take a personal toll on one's essence and sometimes you just have to take a break from it. Sure. Um, to ask you a big broad question, mm-hmm. how do you define God? <laughs> That's a really big question. For me, God's not a being or an entity that's some sitting located somewhere in the heavens. Um, for me, God is a word that we use to talk about the life force that connects all of life in the universe. It's more of an energy source that uh, whether we're plant, animal, or human being, uh, we we possess a part of within within us. And that's pretty consistent with Jewish tradition. We don't, even though we, Hebrew is a gendered language, just like Spanish or French, right? Things, you know, a table is male or female, right? It, it's, it's a problem for non-binary people and they're people who are struggling with those words in a good way, struggling to be creative. But God in our theology doesn't have gender because God is not a person in our, in our ideology, in our theology, which is hard for Christians because Jesus was embodied in a human form. And that's the antithesis of Judaism. It is very clear that we, God doesn't have human form. It's, but rather is something other, something different. Uh, and we, we have a God we can't see. And we have a God, we can't even say God's name in Hebrew. Because the ancient name in the Bible is four Hebrew letters that are all vowels. And there was only one person that knew how to pronounce that name, which was the ancient high priest. And the high priest would only pronounce that name one day a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur in the afternoon. But once the temple was destroyed finally by the Romans in the year 70, that name was lost, how to pronounce and how to say it. And so we have a, we have a God, we can't even say God's name. And we have a God we can't see. Well, with not being able to say his, her, their name, that makes me think that I often wonder if everybody believes in God, they just have different language they use, you know? Oh, I think that's really true. We might say the universe. I might, it just might be the feeling I feel when I'm like out for a long hike alone. Well, that's for sure. That's very Jewish of you. (laughs) That's, that's exactly it. We, that is how we describe our experience, that God is existence itself. Well, how do you explain that some people don't believe in God? I think people have a healthy curiosity and a healthy skepticism. Is a good, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Um, I think there's been a lot of emphasis on science and rationality. And Judaism, and particularly Reformed Judaism, is, very much embraces the science. Um, you know, we're not creationists. We don't really believe the literal word of the Bible. We're not literalists in Judaism. But I think there is a spiritual longing that human beings have. And when you automatically say, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist, and you you shut out the discussion of what connects all of life, that is when we lose hope. 
And I think if there's one thing that I see that's a problem with that ideology of saying, oh, there's no God or there's no, there's no anything, is that how do you sustain and build hope in the world if we don't have some way to connect one to the other, to each of us? And for me, that's what the idea of God does. It connects all of humanity together. And so is that what gives you hope now today? Our yeah, I do. it does give me hope because when you meet somebody one-on-one -on -one and you can really encounter them and look into their eyes and engage with them, we may not agree on everything, but, but we can come to know one another. And it's in that moment of knowing and that revelation that we have with each other, that's where the possibility of doing thing, good things together comes from. I love that. I think that's an amazing place to leave it at too. Thank you for talking. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thanks for the Thanks. interview. Of course. That's it for today. We'll be back next week. But until then, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to stay connected and recommend guests. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Tanner Robbins, Betty Marquez-Rosales, Natalie Bader, Karin Navadia, and myself, with sound engineering by Scott Somerville and Mark Bush. We'll see you next week.